1: WABE in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights, a new art exhibition exploring the human relationship with nature, is opening in the Welch School Gallery at Georgia State University. Curator Cynthia Farnell and artist Medora Fry will give us a preview. We'll listen back to a conversation from 2018 with the filmmakers of RBG, an award-winning documentary about the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And we'll hear about a new movie made in Georgia that's part of the Atlanta Film Festival. Plus... Another celebration of film in Atlanta begins this week. Out on film, Atlanta's LGBTQIA festival begins Thursday. Jim Farmer is the festival director. He joins us now via Zoom. Jim, welcome back to City Lights.
0: Lois, thanks so much for having me this morning.
1: The words festival and pandemic do not fit together logically. What has the year 2020 meant for out on film?
0: It's been a very surreal year. I mean, we, uh, the irony is at the very beginning of the year, when we became an Oscar qualifying festival, we were like, yeah, we're going to have a big, splashy, great event for the community. And then COVID hit. I, I went down for about a month just sadness and disbelief but then I got up and said you know look at the bigger picture I mean you still have your health you still have you you have the ability to do a festival so we just switched to a mostly online event this year we started experimenting in the late spring and summer with with screenings and Q&A's so now we're ready for a a mostly virtual festival on Thursday we're very very excited about it well
1: you mentioned that this year's festival has been designated Oscar qualifying.
0: What does that signify? That means that the film that wins our award for best drama short is now eligible to be considered for next year's Academy Awards. It's, um, it's a huge high honor for us. There are only three Oscar-qualifying film festivals in Atlanta, and we're one of only six LGBT film festivals in the world that are Oscar-qualifying. So we're um, we're very honored by that. Yeah, with good reason.
1: Now, this year's festival is screening a large number of films. Tell us about the selection process, please.
0: The selection process, it was basically... As competitive as it always is, we start at uh, on January 1st and just take films for six, seven months and just really look at th- the best films we get in are, we look at films that speak to um, diverse and inclusive communities in Atlanta. We look for films that tell our, vo- tell our stories and we look for new voices that we haven't heard before. So I- I'm always happy when we can have a festival that, that showcases films literally from all over the country, all over the world, but also takes care of um, showcasing voices from Atlanta as well. And I think we're doing um, a good job of that this year.
1: The festival will open with a screening of Surviving the Silence. Yes. And we had a wonderful conversation with Cindy Abel, the filmmaker, as well as the producer. Why did you choose Surviving the Silence as the opener.
0: We've had a great relationship with Cindy Abel for many, many years. We've had some of her films that she's directed and produced in our festival. We've sort of been nurturing that film for a long time. Two years ago, we had the subjects of the film, uh, Pat Thompson and Barbara Brass, in, in Atlanta just to promote the upcoming film. We just thought it was a natural. It's a natural, I mean, it's a local filmmaker. It tells a great story that a lot of people don't know. It's also... You know, historic because uh, this year we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So we just thought it was a natural to open our festival with. Mm.
1: Let's talk about this year's Out on Film Icon Award winner, Margaret Cho. Why was she selected?
0: Oh, I'm I'm such a huge Margaret Cho fan. I mean, I've, I've adored her for so long as an actress, as a comedian, but also as an activist, I mean, someone who speaks out on issues. Margaret had a connection to Atlanta for the longest time when she was here filming Drop Dead Diva. She also made her film Dependent" here. And we've just, you know, I've always stayed in touch with her office, her her agency and team. And when I knew that we were gonna go virtual this year, I thought this opens up the door to do a lot of interviews and conversations that we might not otherwise have been able to do in person. So I reached out to Margaret and she was receptive, and we're just delighted to be able to uh, show her film, Margaret Show, I'm the One That I Want, on its 20th anniversary, and then have a conversation with Margaret and present her virtually with her Icon Award. Hmm.
1: I read that another highlight of the event this year is the film by Atlanta, Anthony Brown, As I Am. How would you describe As I Am?
0: It's really a coming of age story about a young man dealing with, you know, personal, his personal life his, you know, his, his life with his family and just learning to be himself. I mean, coming out is not easy at any age, especially when you're young and you're dealing with what society expects from you and what society wants from you. And it's really about his journey to be who he is and to be able to open up to other people and accept himself for who he is. Anthony lived here briefly. We've shown several of his short films, and this is his feature film debut, so we are so happy to be able to screen it. Goodbye 70s makes its world
1: premiere at your festival. Why did you decide to include Goodbye 70s?
0: Todd Vero has been making LGBT films for well over 20 years. He's got a huge following, and we just really like this film this quirky film about you know what it was like in the 70s a group of young men who were trying to uh make it in the film business at the end of the 70s everything is carefree and exciting and, and as they veer off into the 80s initially they're very very excited but there, there are some complications that come with the beginning of the AIDS crisis and other issues so we just we thought it was just a great exploration of a young man back in the 70s 80s just sort of a learning their life too and trying to uh, experiment and and, and do the best they can with what a a new generation is bringing on to them. It's specifically about porn? Well, the the gentlemen are filmmakers. They start off doing legitimate work, but then they realize that they can make porn and and, and actually become profitable at it. So they say, yeah, let's do this. The festival will close with an
1: Australian comedy, Ellie and Abby, why?
0: Is this film being screened as the finale? You know, this has been such a tough year for all of us in so many ways. It's just just unexpected stuff that we've had to deal with. And, you know, we love to be able to show films that just make you feel good. This is a true crowd-pleaser. It's a film about a young woman who is dealing with her own issues coming out and learning to be who she is. And she develops feelings for another young girl in high school. She wants to ask her to the school formal, but there are some complications. And, and she gets a visit from her dead aunt, who is a lesbian, to sort of give her advice on how to steer through life and how to deal with relationships and parents in school and society. And, and, and it's, just, it's just a genuine feel-good movie. And I think that at this point of the year, we all need something like that just to get our spirits high again. So we, we, just, we all love the film, and we just knew that we needed to close with it.
1: Jim Farmer is the executive director of Out on Film. The virtual festival begins Thursday evening. There will be more information on our website, wabe.org citylights City Lights. Thursday, a new show will open at the Welch School Gallery of Georgia State University. A pair of exhibitions in dialogue about the human relationship with nature from historical and contemporary artistic perspectives will be on display. The first of those exhibitions is Medora Fry, Stargaze, curated by Welch School Gallery Director Cynthia Farnell. We're joined by the artist and curator via Zoom now. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having us, Lois. Yes, thank
2: you so much. It's so nice to speak with you today.
1: Well, I loved what I've seen of the works that will be on view. Cynthia, why did the Welch School Gallery want to reopen its doors this fall with these two exhibitions in particular?
3: We're excited to be able to offer in-person programming in the Welch School Gallery. Our safety precautions that we've put in place for the community are things like mandatory masks, social distancing, hand sanitizer, and timed tickets. And um, you can reserve your free tickets at Eventbrite. In both my curatorial projects and studio work, I'm interested in the human relationships with nature and how these connections impact the environment, individuals, and communities. And about three years ago, I was inspired by Medora's experiments with light and form. And although some of the materials she was using were manufactured like mirrored glass and neon, you could feel the human touch by the way that she dealt with things like uh, the electrical cords, or she incorporated painted marks into her three-dimensional wall pieces. And as a result, there was always like an earthy warmth to her sculpture. I felt like they were alive. So when we decided that she should do an exhibition at GSU, I invited New York-based curator Jesse Penridge uh, to make a related exhibition for the other gallery. We, you know, we have two spaces. So Jesse had already included Medora's work in another exhibition in New York. So I felt like that they shared some aesthetic sensibilities. And uh, Medora, would you like to to jump in here? So the funny story is,
2: is that we were supposed to do this show two years ago, and uh, about a month before the exhibition was supposed to open in June, Cynthia called me and kind of laughed and told me, "You're not going to believe this, but they're tearing the building down that's connected to the art building that's adjacent." And we can't do your show because I work with a lot of glass and light and electrical, and it's not going to be good for your work. So we postponed the show until the fall, which then that's when they actually really tore the building down. (laughs) That's when it really happened. So this show has been postponed twice. And when it was rescheduled for this fall, you know, we, didn't know what was going to happen with this uh, like as far as like attendance on campus would it be worth it to have a show when the students aren't really on campus much. As it turns out, I think that the timing is perfect because this is the moment when people have sought respite in the outdoors and thematically, it's completely in line with what's <laughs> what's going on in people's lives, I feel like. You know, turning inward. It's very much an introspective show for me, very personal. Some of the work was made at my parents' property, which is about 20 miles south of Atlanta. I grew up on a rock quarry and grew up with piles of granite all around me. And so that's actually become one of the materials that I've been using. And we have been transporting about it's probably going to be about 15 tons of granite into the <laughs> gallery with a team of, of uh, students here and then an assistant of mine. So that's one of my main materials. I've spent a lot of time working at Arabia Mountain and actually returning to working outside. We were not able to access our studios at the Atlanta Contemporary for several months. And so I really had a wonderful push to the outdoors. There's a lot less pressure when you can kind of roam around and you don't have to worry about how things are being attached to each other and whether they can hang on a wall. So mm-hmm. I've been working with just arranging rocks on the ground, making patterns, photographing some of the flora in the area making arrangements with mirrors, which I'm very fond of for several reasons. One is, one is just the idea of spirituality or the association with that, that it is a way of looking into another dimension. I also like the illusion that it creates, the false space that it represents. Um, and then also it creates symmetry, which is very much a natural design element. So when we conceived of the show a couple of years ago, It originally was going to be more object-based and this show which is still has the same title Stargaze which was the original title two years ago the title Stargaze still felt appropriate for this newer work that I've made that's more land-based simply because I felt like it's not really about looking at stars necessarily but It's the mode at which you experience looking at stars, where you feel the overwhelming power of the world and how small you are, and the transcendent experience of
1: that. Mm. Cynthia, you mentioned Jesse Penridge, the curator of the second exhibition on View at the Welch, A Facsimile of Events. How do the two exhibitions relate to one another. I know you've said they are in dialogue. Can you explain how that works?
3: Yes. The outcome of Jesse's project, uh, Facsimile of Events, it's a group exhibition that considers concepts of nature through the work of eight artists from the late 19th century to the present. And it uses Frederick Law Olmsted's design of Linear Park in Atlanta as a starting point. Uh-huh. to talk about human relationship with nature and how we alter nature to our own ends. Uh, and this is a, a especially relevant conversation now with the fires going on you know, on the West Coast and hurricanes and COVID. Nature is really speaking right now. And... Madora's work, and I think the work of a lot of other artists during this period of COVID-19, during the pandemic, I think that we're all considering our relationship to the planet and and how much our lives are dependent on its, its health. In Jesse's show, they all all the artists are making work in the environment and they're not in a traditional gallery setting and they're not necessarily, they don't have an audience, you know, out there in the desert, for example. So the way that we experience the work is through facsimiles, such as video or photography, video photography, drawings, lithographs. And this ephemera gives us an approximation of the original event, but not the sensual experience of actually being there. And so I think that that's what Medora is trying to do, is to give the sensual experience of being at Arabia Mountain and making the work and being at her parents' quarry and making work there as well.
1: Looking through the artwork that will be on view, I was mesmerized by the photo of Niagara Falls. Cynthia, can you describe this piece and how it was created?
3: Yes. So this is, a Super Studio was a, an experimental architectural firm in the nineteen sixties, they're Italian. And they didn't create a lot of the architecture. It was more uh, theoretical proposals uh, for this architecture. And it was a way to think about being in, in the city or being urban, how to live in the 20th century, how to live in our new environments. And um, that piece, Niagara by Super Studio, it's a proposal to create a structure that would capture the water from Niagara Falls, which is an impossible idea, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's... So they were into these impossible ideas uh, of thinking of crazy architectural projects in the environment.
2: I want her to make sure to mention that this is someone's chance to see works in person that were created by Robert Smithson and Nancy Holt and Anna
3: Mendieta. Yes, all three, in, Super Studio included, but uh, Robert Smithson, Nancy Holt and Anna Mendieta were, were, uh, three artists who were very seminal in, in this land art movement period in, in the 1970s.
1: One of the photographs shows several reflective boxes perched on a cliff showcasing the sky in their reflection. How did you create these reflective boxes medora and slipped them to the top of that hill so should i I tell the truth about (laughs) sure the
2: the funny thing about that photograph was when i go out i try to take as few things with me as possible when i go out on these art making trips and i basically just carried a Set of maybe six 12 by 12 inch glass mirror tiles that you get at Home Depot in a backpack and my iPhone and a tripod and basically set up still lifes out on Arabia Mountain and photograph them. Even though those, (laughs) for some reason, that piece turned out looking very monumental, and I think it's because it you can't see the perspective. It's flattened out. And you just see the trees in the distance. So it makes the forms look really gigantic. But I captured that moment about five minutes before the sun went down completely. And I just loved the magical interruption of that space by that brilliant
1: sunset. Mm. Medora, would you describe your... Installation Venus's Looking Glass and its immersive experience.
2: Yes, Venus's Looking Glass is a, an art installation that I created for the show She Is Here, which is currently on view at the Atlanta Contemporary Art Center down the street from Georgia State University. It would be easy to stop in both places. <laughs> yes, it would. My piece at the Atlanta Contemporary Venus's Looking Glass is a window that's in the main gallery. Uh, Normally the shade is closed and it was open one time and I noticed that there was a bit of earth that presses up against the window. So you see a bisection of the earth there and the whole piece celebrates that little bit of earth. I have covered the window with dichroic film, which is this really dynamic film that essentially filters out half of the light particles, depending on which color is on one side, the opposite color is revealed on the inside. Um, So it's a big mound of granite rocks. It's, I think, six tons of rock. Uh, piled under the window, and then part of it extends to the outside, so it really, but it really ties the indoors and the outdoors together. There's fluorescent lights, and it's very much about perhaps seeing the events of the world through Venus's eyes, so you can, within the gallery, look out into the landscape, and it's kind of a crappy courtyard no offense Atlanta can <laughs> do but putting putting the putting the dichroic film on the window makes it look like this beautiful landscape outside you know I think that if you can just accept everything that's happening and, and listen right now
3: I, I think you'll be much better off Miguel mm-hmm. and I were talking last night about this period of COVID-19 and everything else that has been going on and that while we may not all be experiencing it in the same way, our attention is all focused on the issues that need to be changed at the moment or some of the issues that need to be changed at the moment. And this is a very special time, I think, for humanity in that we can consider where we are and we can realize that we can have an impact through what we do every day, including making art.
1: Curator and Welch School Gallery Director Cynthia Farnell, speaking with artist Medora Fry, Stargates and a facsimile of events will run concurrently September 24th through November 13th at Georgia State's Welch School Gallery. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash City Light. Bigfoot, or Sasquatch, is an ape-like creature that lives in forests. In the new movie, 15 Things You Didn't Know About Bigfoot, the ape-like creature takes on added meaning for an aspiring New York journalist sent to cover the unfolding story in North Georgia. Zach Lamplew wrote and directed the comedy, which is part of the Atlanta Film Festival. He is with us now via Zoom. Zach, welcome to City Lights. Hey, Lois, how are you? I'm glad to be talking with you. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. Well, though Bigfoot is imagined to be an ape, It seems the 800-pound gorilla in this film is journalism. Is is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so without giving away spoilers, would you
4: talk about the basic plot of the movie? Uh, Okay, so it is about a guy who really wants to be a successful journalist, has always wanted to do this. And he works at one of these cool journalism companies we've all heard of. And he always gets assigned these things that are like, I lived with nudists, and here's what it's really like. I went to Burning Man, so you don't have to. He always has to work those kind of stories. And uh, he, he really wants to do something else. And his latest story that he has to work on is Uh, I went and lived with Bigfoot hunters for a week to tell you what it's really like. And when he gets there, he finds out that maybe Bigfoot is real. And as far as journalism, I guess that theme throughout the movie of being at a job where you you feel like you could maybe be working on something more important is, um, I I feel like, just all of media. (laughs) With
1: full recognition that both of us are part of media, correct? Yeah, for sure. There are loads of funny jabs at hipster culture. Brian is from Brooklyn. At first, I started counting the number of different eyeglasses he was wearing. I mean, it seemed like he had a different pair of cool eyeglasses in each of several scenes but then i gave up what can you tell us about brian's
4: character that character came from we were making fun of uh, vice <laughs> we were on vacation and we were he was doing a character where he would just talk really monotone like that like that guy thomas morton from vice let's put him on blast <laughs> brian would just be like here we are in the street looking at this shop do we go in do we not and like, he would just narrate everything that we were doing just to mess with me. And we were like, that's a pretty funny character. I bet we could do that for five or 10 minutes. And then it uh, we did a sketch, a couple sketches like that. And then it became a whole movie. <laughs> we were like, I bet we could do this for 90 minutes. So we're here in Georgia at the largest Bigfoot convention in the Southeast. It's taking place on- Ryan, well, why don't you do one like smiling? Smiling? I'm very serious. Like, I'm I'm grave. Do you want to do one where you're less grave? No.
1: So, Brian, the character, is also Brian, the actor. His real name is Brian Eamond. Yes. And the film has no qualms about poking fun at the producer, Zach. Yes, yeah. Who, who unlike Brian is not vain, and he is very hardworking. Your name is Zach. You also are a producer. Tell us about this
4: self-deprecating character. Is that really you, Zach? I mean, all these characters are really based on us. <laughs> Either way, I mean, as far as my character, I've, I've, the one that I play, I've definitely felt like that a lot where I'm just kind of the camera guy that's being lugged around by somebody more important. And then as far as the Brian character, I, I've definitely felt that too, where you have a cool job and you feel like you're trapped by it. And I know Brian feels the same way about his own character as well. Not necessarily about like the the being trapped in a media job, but I guess just being trapped in everything being driven toward hipsterdom. <laughs> And I was hoping you would talk about the character
1: of Jeff, the one man bigfoot hunting army. What gave you the idea for Jeff?
4: well, Jeff the actor, super funny. We knew he could do this, and we were like, we'll just give him a lot a character with a lot of heart and good range, and he'll nail it. He's awesome. Character was uh, based on a friend of mine that we used to go camping with who had a bit of a Napoleon complex. <laughs> who just always had to one-up you or always had to just like, oh, I see you put your hammock up. I can put my hammock up a little bit better and then his hammock would fall. (laughs) Yeah, bit of a goofball. Bigfoot is the next step in human evolution. And if evolution has taught us anything, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands through territories, it crashes through barriers painfully or maybe even dangerously, but well, there it is. Life finds find a way. way. From Jurassic Park. No, I just, I just made that up.
1: I was wondering what kind of research on hunting for Bigfoot went into writing this film. How much did you have to learn about the
4: lore of Bigfoot? Uh, quite a bit, actually, because we didn't want it to be fake. You know, we didn't want it to be. Ridiculous looking, like the 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 calls that we're doing or the things that we're doing. So we did quite a bit of research on it, and we actually filmed the part where we're at a Bigfoot festival. Was actually at a Bigfoot festival. Really? Yeah, we drove to North Carolina to go film. That was like the first thing we filmed. We it was gonna be happening, and we were like, we can't miss the opportunity to get that on tape. So like. Those, like, there's some Bigfoot casts and stuff in it, like some hands and some feet on, like, a vendor's table. That was really at a vendor's table in a, at a Bigfoot festival in Marion, North Carolina.
1: <laughs> what does the film say about conspiracy theories?
4: You know, I, I think that it, what I guess what I'm trying to say is they're really fun. Um, they're, you know, they're really fun to, to believe in a little bit. Like, everybody wants to think, like, Roswell is real, and and then i guess to to meet one person like trapped by that belief is kind of sad and also kind of interesting to like jump into that world with that character and also
1: the movie is a satire or critique of documentary making and would you throw in
4: clickbait culture with that yeah for sure, there's just too many of these things. People <laughs> <Someone laughs> need to stop these documentaries. No, um, no, it 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 just is getting bananas now. The 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 amount of like media and things that people think kind of deserve a documentary or just deserve. I guess it comes out of reality TV. There's like a blur now of like something that feels like smart reality television. Where they're like these are facts, and it's like kind of barely they're th- they're unscripted nonfiction things that really happened, but they're not really documentaries, you know. Well,
1: I must say that the mockumentary is given tribute here, and Christopher Guest certainly comes to mind. He he was a master of that. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the character of Ma, because I think she has one of the great lines in this film. Hunting the Bigfoot seems to uncover another type of monster in a drug cartel in North Georgia.
4: What can you tell us about Ma Pritchard? man so that actress virginia kirby we'd worked with her before um in like short films and things and she is incredible and so we we knew we wanted to give her a part like we knew we wanted to give her a strong part and she could nail it and man she's just such a professional she came out and just nailed it and everybody was like that that was like such a great performance but also also i gotta say like we like changed the monologue up on her last second too because she she was like the way we wrote it, it just wasn't sounding right. And just like, what a professional. Like she she took like 30 seconds and was like, okay, cool. I'll just rearrange all the like sentences in my head and then just like nailed it. She says
1: with perfect seriousness about journalism, you're not supposed to interfere with what you're reporting on. You're supposed to observe. And I thought that was just priceless in the context of the absurdity of, of the moment and the comedy of the film at that point. Was that in the script or was that her line?
4: That was in the script. We wanted it to, you know, whatever whatever she was railing on our main character for, we wanted it to also tie back to the theme that he's been fighting his whole life. So So we wrote that bit in there. Talking about that
1: main character, in the beginning, Brian is very cynical, predictably jaded. How does his
4: character evolve by the end of the film? Well, you know, he learns that you're not going to necessarily get what you think you want, but you're going to learn to make the best of your circumstances. You're going to get over this weight that you've been putting on yourself and learn to accept what your life is and not what you think it should be well i think that this clearly was
1: a labor of love looking over the credits you and brian co-wrote you directed acted
4: what more could you possibly have done for this film this really was a labor of love like figuring out locations catering or just you know trying to, to to wrangle the circus like some days I didn't even feel like I was directing it. I just felt like I was organizing it.
1: You must feel very proud that it is featured in this Atlanta Film Festival
4: 2020. I'm very excited I'm very excited that people are able to see it now. Zach Lamplew was the writer and director of
1: Fifteen Things You Didn't Know About Bigfoot. For more information on streaming the movie, that's part of the Atlanta Film Festival, check out our website, wabe.org slash City Lights.
0: Have you heard an interview on City Lights that you would like to share with a friend or listen to again? wabe.org slash citylights is the place to find today's interview, as well as segments from previous shows. We invite you to search, stream, and share your favorite show at wabe.org slash citylights. And thanks for listening.
1: After hearing that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away last Friday, I thought back on RBG, the award-winning documentary about her life and rise to the top. RBG was released in 2018, and I spoke with the filmmakers from NPR in Washington just ahead of the opening. Directors Betsy West and Julie Cohen captured many facets of RBG's life, from her youth to her extraordinary marriage, her love for opera, and her tireless dedication to the fight for women's equality under law. We'll listen back to an excerpt from my conversation with the filmmakers now. Here's Julie Cohen on how their collaboration began.
5: Well, Betsy and I had worked together on a previous project, the Makers Project, about the history of the women's rights uh, movement, for which Betsy had done an interview with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, sort of laying out her incredible life story. And it was in... 2015 when she had become such a pop culture icon RBG had, not mm-hmm. that Betsy is it also um, <laughs> that we um, you know we knew her life story. I had done an interview with her for another project and we just thought somebody ought to make a documentary about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and why not have it be us?
1: How long was the project in the making?
5: Well,
6: basically, from that idea to finishing the film was about three years. It took us a few months to uh, get Justice Ginsburg's limited cooperation, and then we slowly moved to get more cooperation from her. So we began filming in 2016 in the summer, and uh, we finished it last fall.
1: I noticed in the credits that many, if not all, of the creative team are women.
5: All the top creative positions in our film were occupied by women. We thought that would be in keeping with the spirit of our film, directed by two women, about a woman who's a champion of women's rights. And, you know, we feel pretty good about that decision. It certainly made the production of the film a lot of fun.
1: Oh, wow. Not long after the film begins, Justice Ginsburg explains... Only in America could she have achieved what she did. How did her family background help form her values?
6: Her family played an enormous role in forming her values. She's the daughter of immigrants for whom education was paramount, especially her mother, who had lost another child. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was an only child, and her mother was dedicated to um, exposing her to the world, to taking her to the library, taking her to concerts.
1: The relationship of Ruth and her husband, Marty, is given a fair amount of time on screen. It feels like their love story is a through line of the film, would you talk about this extraordinary partnership?
5: Absolutely. Ruth and Marty Ginsburg had what may be the greatest feminist love story of our times. We knew we wanted to make it part of the film, but each subsequent cut, each exploration that we did of the story just made that part expand. They met as undergraduates at Cornell from the very beginning. Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that that he was the only man that she met. She certainly dated a number of guys in college. Uh, The male to female ratio worked in her favor. And she was extraordinarily beautiful. But he was the first guy she met who cared that she had a brain. And that caring continued through their life together, through his you know, extraordinary support for everything she did, his push to help get her onto the Supreme Court, and really everything up until his death in, in 2010. It was just an extraordinary marriage.
6: And, and we just loved uh, witnessing the atmosphere in the family. It's a close family, and Marty was a very funny guy and very outgoing. There's a lot of joking, a lot of kidding, sometimes at Justice Ginsburg's expense, because she was not a particularly good chef, which her children <laughs> talk about. And Marty took over the role of... Uh, chief uh, cook and bottle washer in the Ginsburg household and um, you know it's it's just a very warm uh, relationship
1: she had a 14 month old baby when she began law school and you know nowadays we don't think that's out of the ordinary so much but it does reveal so much about Marty that he was willing to share the responsibilities and he was two years ahead of her in law school.
5: Keep in mind that when Ruth Bader Ginsburg went to law school, it was unusual for a woman to go to law school at all. She was one of nine in a class of 500 when she started Harvard Law School, let alone for a woman with a baby to go to law school. Um, Really almost unheard of. It's a testament to her husband's commitment as a, as a family man, it's a testament, frankly, to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's own level of ambition and determination that she decided to push through as a law student. And she was, you know, that she was willing to take all of that on uh, as a young mother. She talks about how she had a conversation
6: with her father-in-law when she first uh, realized that she was pregnant and she was going to be have a baby in law school. And um, her father-in-law said to her, Look, Ruth, if you want to not go to law school, nobody will blame you. You have the most perfect reason in the world. But if you do want to go, you'll find a way. And and that kind of characterizes her path. Every time she met a challenge in her life, she'll find a way.
1: And she did it quietly. Um, her granddaughter said that her bubby told her, You'll never win an argument by yelling. It's remarkable that for all of her achievements, she was not a firebrand. She persevered, but you bring out that she did it all in her quiet, very dignified way.
5: Absolutely. It kind of runs counter to some of our beliefs about what makes a successful person how you rise to the top. Like, it, Maybe it's not always the person who's screaming and yelling. Maybe it's not always the person who's jumping in front of every microphone. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was quiet, reserved, soft-spoken, deliberately speaking. As you say, not a flamethrower, not a, flame a firebrand. And yet, she made extraordinary changes when she was a young lawyer working for the ACLU Women's Rights Project. She st- embarked on a whole body of law. She started taking cases to the Supreme Court to make the case that men and women should be treated equally under the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. She was she was bringing about big change, even if she was doing it quietly.
1: Yeah, it was astonishing that when she graduated from law school, she said not one firm in New York City would hire her. So how did that shape the course of her future and ours? You mentioned the Women's Rights Project.
6: Yeah, she was at the top of her class, and yet she was shut out of the major law firm. She became a teacher, and at the end of the 1960s, her students in law school started asking her to look at laws involving women. And uh, she soon realized that uh, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of laws in our country that discriminated against women. Women couldn't get credit or a mortgage without their husband's permission they could be fired summarily if they were pregnant. And men were never prosecuted for raping their wives. Ruth Bader Ginsburg recognized that women were second-class citizens, and she started devising a strategy to bring these six cases before the Supreme Court, one by one, over a period of years in the 1970s, in which she attacked the underlying discrimination that A lot of people just took for granted as the way things are. And um, she showed nine male justices that it was wrong under the U.S. Constitution.
1: Yes, you capture the suspense and the gravity of her first case before the Supreme Court in 1973. Please talk about how she overcame her nervousness.
5: Well, uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, says that she was so nervous when she was going into the courtroom that she didn't eat lunch for fear that she might uh, lose it, uh, <laughs> As in, in her words. Um, you know, it's a very intimidating atmosphere in the main chambers of the U.S. Supreme Court. She's looking up at uh, the nine male justices above her. She's about to make the case that discrimination by gender in the United States is a big problem that has existed for centuries, to an audience of men perhaps not inclined to hear that, quite unfamiliar with that argument. Remember, this is 1973, very different world at that time. And yet you can hear it in her voice, which we capture in her film, because fortunately the court keeps audio tapes of those arguments. She starts out a little bit tentatively, but she very quickly gathers steam. And she just strongly and forcefully makes an argument that's so powerful that the justices who usually interrupt during, uh, you know, the second or third sentence just sat there listening. One of the people in the courtroom said it was like they were mesmerized by her argument. And
1: she said she decided one way to get over her fear was to realize Well, she did have a captive audience, and she could teach them. It it was fascinating to hear her say that in many ways throughout her career, she saw herself in the role of a kindergarten teacher.
6: Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is an educator, and that's how she approached her arguments before the court. Uh, Many men thought that these discriminatory laws were good for women. They were putting women on a pedestal. Uh, They were helping them as opposed to, you know, why should they have to work overtime? Why should they have to serve on juries? Well, what if you're a woman who's accused of battering your husband and you're facing a jury of nine men? All of these laws were somehow interpreted as being good for women, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, very quietly, carefully, deliberately explained to them how they hurt women and also how they hurt men. She picked sometimes clients who were men in order to show that uh, gender discrimination hurts everybody in our society.
1: Yes, that was a powerful example with the young widower whose wife died in childbirth.
5: Yes, uh, Stephen Weisenfeld was um, raising a baby because his wife had died in childbirth. He decided he wanted to be a stay-at-home dad, obviously a very strong, you know, gesture of fatherly love. And yet when he went to get social security benefits that a widow would get, he was told, oh, no, no, that's a mother's benefit. A man can't get that. Ruth Bader Ginsburg learned about this case and she jumped on it. She knew that Stephen Weisenfeld was going to be a very sympathetic character when telling a story about how the genders aren't treated equally to a group of justices who were, after all, men.
1: Well, it is fantastic that she's something of a rock star for young people in particular. Tell us about Notorious RBG.
6: Well, um, you know, we knew about Notorious RBG. We had been following it on social media, but frankly, it wasn't until we began filming that we witnessed uh, the phenomenon itself. She would go to, you know, the Fordham Law School in New York, and her talk would be sold out for weeks, and yet the line would be around the corner of people without tickets who just wanted to get a glimpse of her, (laughs) often young women who really identify with this 85-year-old tiny grandmother who is representing a point of view that they agree with, who's speaking truth to power. It's an extraordinary phenomenon and one which I think she never asked for, but once she recognized what it was, she understood that it gives her an opportunity to spread her message about the law, about our democracy to a different
1: generation. Filmmakers Betsy West and Julie Cohen created the documentary RBG. They spoke with me from NPR in Washington just before the film opened in 2018. The documentary is available on major streaming services. I highly recommend watching the film, especially now. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Wrights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.